If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Three great words. Free Fries Friday. Especially when they're used in that exact order. Get a free medium fries with $1 minimum purchase. Bell one time on Fridays at participating McDonald's through 123124. Excludes tax must update to rewards. Hello, I'm Rob Attar, and this is the first History Extra podcast of April 2012. This week, we're marking 30 years since the start of the Falklands War. Coming up on the programme, we have... And all my old friends I've been war corresponding with in the Middle East, in Vietnam, in Africa, said, oh, come on, what's going to happen, Max? You will sail round and round the Atlantic for weeks and get horribly seasick, and nothing will happen. That was Sir Max Hastings, who served as a war reporter during the conflict. There's a sense that veterans have that they're now dispensable by a system that they've given everything for. And that was Dr Helen Parr, who is researching the impact of the war on the people involved. This podcast is brought to you by the team behind BBC History magazine, which is Britain's best-selling history magazine. You can find us in all good news agents and on subscription. There's more details of that on our website, historyextra.com. Of course, we're now far more than just a print product. You can purchase our Kindle edition direct from the Amazon website, or try us out on the iPad via the Apple newsstand. 
You can also find out more about our iPad edition at historyextra.com forward slash iPad. Don't forget we can also be found on facebook.com forward slash history extra or twitter.com forward slash history extra. On the 2nd of April 1982, Argentine forces invaded the Falkland Islands, which are known in Argentina as the Malvinas. In response, Margaret Thatcher's government in Britain ordered that a task force be sent to the South Atlantic to claim them back. After a successful two-month campaign, the Argentines surrendered and the war was over, at a cost of over 900 lives. One man who witnessed the fighting firsthand was Sir Max Hastings, a journalist and historian who accompanied the British task force as a war correspondent. On Sunday, he presented a BBC Two documentary on the Falklands legacy, I interviewed Max recently about his Falklands experiences and began by asking him about the documentary. I'm doing a 60-minute special for BBC Two, which is really about the legacy of the Falklands, uh, simply trying to look at how the war seems to us uh, 30 years on, three decades on, um, after all the feelings at the time and everybody said amazingly euphoric things mm. about how ah this was going to transform Britain and this was going to show that we were a new Britain and had left the past behind and really in a way I think what seems to me striking is that the legacy of the Falklands was really quite short-lived it was enormously important um, in making Margaret Thatcher that it's sometimes forgotten that back in 1982 when the war broke Thatcher's standing in the opinion polls was very low mm. And many of us had real doubts whether she was going to win the 1983 general election. And um, her standing within her own party was very low. That um, many people were um, within the Conservative ranks were thinking openly about revolts. And the so-called wets, um, who hated her as much as she hated them, were um, bitterly hostile to a lot of things she was trying to do. But of course the Falklands absolutely transformed all that. Suddenly she had an authority... Um, as a world statesman, that she was known all over the world, vastly admired in America as the Iron Lady and all the rest of it. So the Falklands War had a huge effect on Thatcher's fortunes and contributed um, significantly, if not decisively, to enabling her to win the 83 election. It also, of course, um, um, brought about democracy in Argentina because um, um, the Argentine military junta collapsed um, mm. as a result of defeat in the Falklands. But as for the rest, it gave a terrific boost to British self-confidence in the short term that suddenly, after so long in which we'd all felt pretty glum about British decline, we suddenly found, well, even if we couldn't make a decent motor car, we could fight um, a jolly successful little colonial war. And that perked everybody up for a season. But then, when everybody calmed down and started looking at it more in perspective, that really, they did realise, we realised, that... This little colonial war had absolutely nothing to do with the real problems of Britain in the last years of the 20th century. And in many ways, what's remarkable, I mean, for me, it was an extraordinary experience. And in many ways, perhaps the great romantic adventure of my life. Um, but in its real strategic importance to Britain, its historical importance to Britain, I don't think its importance was that great. In a way, it was more like the end of an era rather than a new beginning because it was the it last was, colonial war. It was war. more like, I mean, I made a joke. All my friends teased me when I told them I was going to go to the Falklands because I was mm. then largely out of journalism and I was writing a big book on D-Day and the Normandy campaign in World War II. And 
when I heard that Thatcher was sending a task force, I suddenly sat up and said, I've got to go. That most of my friends thought I was bonkers. And they said, Max, nobody's going to fight a war in the South Atlantic in 1982 for this completely meaningless bit of real estate in the middle of the South Atlantic. And all my old friends I've been war corresponding with in the Middle East, in Vietnam, in Africa, said, oh, come on, all that's going to happen, Max, you will sail round and round the Atlantic for weeks and get horribly seasick, and nothing will happen. But I said, I always regretted that I wasn't around to go up the Nile with Kitchener in 1898 to fight the dervishes, another great uh, colonial adventure. But um, in our generation, uh, to go by proxy at least mm. um, to the South Atlantic with Thatcher uh, seems the equivalent. And I felt if there's going to be a war, it's going to be a quite extraordinary event and I want to be there to see it. And I was a little bit nervous about my age because I was 36. And although that may not sound very old to me now, I'm 65, but in those days it did seem pretty old because we knew that if there was going to be a war in that bitterly hostile environment, and hmm. um, if we had to start um, walking, I mean, I'd never even heard the word yomping in those days, but if we had to start marching across the island, I was getting a bit old for marching with a pack um, um, across a barren barren hills on the other side of the world but I felt oh well I may be just young enough to be able to get away with it and so I packed up my old parachute smock and uh, uh, my boots and all the rest of it and, um, and got on the boat at Southampton. And you were saying that a lot of people didn't expect there to be a war over the Falklands, why do you think Thatcher or Britain decided to go with the military option there? Events have, not, have a momentum of their own that it just inherently seems a matter of common sense, crazy, the idea that Britain in 1982 should actually come to blows with a South American state about this tiny place um, right in the middle of nowhere, inhabited by a couple of thousand settlers, um, at, at this stage in, in, in mankind's affairs. It just didn't seem to have anything to do with mm. anything else. It had nothing to do with the Cold War, which of course was then going on with Russia. It had nothing to do with our huge industrial and economic problems. It, it was just um, an old-fashioned colonial conflict. But the Argentine junta never thought we would fight. Much later, when I started interviewing Argentine prisoners, they all said the same thing, but we never thought you would fight. We never thought you, mm. were, you were serious. But Thatcher had got into a hell of a hole that everybody agreed, as they agree now, that the fact that Argentina had been able to invade the Falklands represented a colossal diplomatic and military um, humiliation for Britain and especially for the Thatcher government. That really there have been two logical choices, either um, to negotiate for the Falklands if we didn't want them anymore, or to make sure we defended them. The worst possible option is what we did. We left the Argentines with the impression that we didn't really want the Falklands and we weren't serious about keeping them. And so we provided them with a rationale in their minds for invasion. And we did absolutely nothing to protect, our, protect the islands from that contingency. So it was a huge failure by the Thatcher government that made possible what had happened. And after that, after Thatcher had taken a terrible hammering in the House of Commons, when she'd almost, and then there was talk of national humiliation, of Britain looking ridiculous, of the, of the Prime Minister looking ridiculous, she had to get them back 
if she was going to look credible any longer as Prime Minister. Um, but the Argentines themselves, they couldn't believe that we were really, really going to fight a war at this stage to do it. A lot of people had great doubts whether it was possible. I mean, I, I, I'm always impressed after the war was over and Simon Jenkins and I were writing a book together about it. Um, I interviewed um, General um, uh, Sir Edwin Bramall, as he was then, who was the Chief of the General Staff, and he made absolutely plain that he thought the idea of sending a task force was bonkers. He thought to fight a war at this stage in the game 8,000 miles away was going to be incredibly difficult with the resources we had. But he was bounced into it because the Royal Navy had told the Prime Minister they could do it. Why had they done that? Not because they really, really thought they could, but because um, Admiral Sir Henry Leach, uh, who was then the first Sea Lord, when he was asked, he suddenly thought that all his years in the Navy, he'd seen the Navy declining and seemed to become ever more irrelevant, and suddenly he saw this, in his eyes, unique opportunity. At last, the Royal Navy had a chance to prove that it could still fight and it was still relevant. So he told Margaret Thatcher, without really thinking about the odds, that yes, he could send a task force and we could recapture the islands. And so, um, poor old General Bramall felt that after the Navy had said they could do it, the Army could hardly say they couldn't. But once this task force had put to sea, and once we were all unknowing in the middle of the South Atlantic, crowded aboard these ships, the people in charge started getting very cold feet. And when they started getting down some serious staff planning, the, mm. the, three armed, the Britain's three armed forces, for how we were going to recapture the islands, gosh, they were scared because they could see how difficult this was going to be. Because there was the Argentines who had their own aircraft carrier, who had air bases which they could reach the Falklands, and there was us with just a few sea harriers and our small aircraft carriers, and no, above all, no serious radar cover, which these days is thought absolutely essential yeah. to have proper radar cover. And we didn't have it. And so um, our, the people in charge on our side were had very cold feelings in the pit of their stomachs as they started planning this and the first thing they decided was we got to do something to improve the odds um, which were very much against us and it was because of that it was because the Royal Navy saw the odds so heavily stacked that they were so eager to sink um, at least one element of the Argentine fleet that was at sea and their choice would have been to sink the Argentine aircraft carrier, which they thought mm. posed the most dangerous threat. But the second mo um, uh, most dangerous threat was um, the heavy cruiser Belgrano. And that was how the Belgrano uh, came to be sunk. Because, of course, the government and the chiefs of staff couldn't say this publicly at the time. But they felt the odds were stacked against us and we had to do something to make them a bit better. So the Belgrano did have a military use to the oh, Argentines? Oh, very much so. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, it can't be said too often. In the eyes of the Royal Navy and the, and the planners, mm. as they looked at the whole situation when the campaign began, the Argentines had all the advantages. They were close to home, they had powerful forces, they had some jolly good aircraft, they had Exocet missiles, and we were on the back foot. And it was, it was absolutely essential to, to, to improve the odds. Um, and so with, with the odds so much stacked against Britain, do you think it was quite a, quite a military achievement to be able to win the war? The Argentines weren't very good. It's no good pretending they were. 
I mean, much later in the war, when um, we, um, I'd been with a Royal Marine commando who'd captured one of the mountains around Fort Stanley, and he looked at this terrific mountain, which the Argentines had been defending, and he said, with 50 Germans, I could have died of old age holding this place. And we shouldn't pretend that the Argentine army was the Wehrmacht. They were pretty pathetic. Um, the real difficulty was fighting this campaign at such very long range, 8,000 miles from yeah. home. And the luck could have gone the other way. What we should never forget, our victory was not inevitable. All the Argentines that needed, they did have a good air force and they did have these good jets. And if one or two more of their bombs had worked, um, and if one or two more of their, if one of their extra sets had hit a British aircraft carrier, as it well could have done, yeah. um, we could have found ourselves in a hell of a hole. But once we got ashore in the islands, the Royal Marines, the Parachute Regiment, were a million miles better than all these wretched Argentine conscripts. But I can tell you, I remember very well at the time how it felt. Um, there we were when we got ashore in the Falklands on these barren islands, which looked pretty much like uh, the west coast of Scotland. Um, but gosh, it felt an awful long way from home. And we felt very lonely and very exposed. And when the Argentine aircraft started attacking, and we watched ships sinking, and I'd seen lots of things in my time as a war correspondent, but I'd never mm. seen ships sinking. And when we looked out there and we saw ships going to the bottom in the middle of San Carlos water, we were scared. Um, and we thought, I remember very well one day, after we'd just seen an air attack in which a couple of our transports had been hit, and a Royal Marine standing next to me said, Gore, he said, if it goes down like, down, on like this, we're gonna have to get the Yanks down here to help us. And I said, I have to break it to you, that." The Americans are not going to come down and help us, that we're going to have to do this on our own. And um, it felt pretty lonely out there. And I mean, the climate, it was so cold and we were yeah. so wet and um, pretty glum stuff. And yeah, it was, I mean, the good, the good bit, what made it a wonderful adventure for me, I grew not only to like, but to love those men one was with. I mean, they were terrific, Royal Marines of the Parrot. And when we started walking across this bloody island, um, and it was pretty rough, and certainly for me, it was not a young Marine or para. I was 36 years old and terribly unfit. Um, that at times one felt pretty miserable, not to mention pretty cold. But um, with these terrific guys, you know, really, you just felt so lucky to be there with these wonderful men. And there was one terrific moment I remember when. Um, the commanding officer of the SAS, Michael Rose, agreed to take me up to the top of Mount Kent, which was then our most exposed position, miles out in the middle of nowhere, where we were staging a night landing. And I must say, I was bloody terrified that um, uh, we take off, before we took off, um, and all these helicopters were hopelessly overloaded, and the SAS guys and a few Royal Marines got into them our flight was sinking. Yeah. And then after we were in, everybody threw in on top of us, lots of mortar bombs and um, blowpipe missiles and um, um, shells and ammunition boxes and all the rest of it. And I thought, gory, and I thought if, if these are hit in the air, the chance of any of us getting out are almost nil. And then we set off, we're flying at deck level, in the darkness, across the Falklands, to land in the middle of nowhere, knowing the Argentines may be somewhere up there. And I shouted to my, Michael Rose next to me, 
over the noise of the engine. I shouted, well, what happens if the RGs start hitting the landing zone? And he leaned over and laughed and he said, oh, well, who dares wins? Bloody difficult to be frightened when people say things like this in the middle of... And when we did land, there was actually a firefight going on. And again, if you don't know what's going on and you suddenly pile out of a helicopter in the dark and this icy mountain up nowhere and you see all this tracer going all over the thing. Again, I mean, I was about as scared as I possibly could be. And I just ran and cowered behind a rock until the helicopters disappeared. But eventually everything calmed down. And um, again, when you're with these guys, the SAS and Royal Marines, um, they are so sure of themselves and they so, they're so sure that they know what they're doing um, that it's very difficult to stay scared oneself. Um, and I, you know, I, I came to adore it in the moments when I wasn't. I mean, I, I think that next night on Mount Kent, when I couldn't sleep while I was shivering so much. I mean, mm. when I was just lying there all night and dawn, I was so bloody grateful when dawn came, at least you could brew up. Um, and everybody had been in the same boat, just shivering all night. Um, but these were great people and it was wonderful to be with them. And, and gradually you realized we were much better than the other side, that um, uh, the Royal Marines and the Paris are the best in the world at this and to be with them in these places was terrific. And so you obviously formed quite close relationships with the soldiers out there. How easy was it then for you to report in partial or neutral fashion? I don't think I'd have pretended to be impartial. I was criticised by some people after the war was over for mm. having been too gung-ho and having been too um, jingoistic in my reporting. But th this was Britain's war and you know, most places one is you can take a reasonably detached view, but when you're with the t a task force like that on the far side of the world, fighting against the odds, um, I felt, well, after it's all over, we can have a good argument about whether the war was a good idea. But this minute, these are our guys, I'm with them, I want our side to win. But it is fair to say that some people um, uh, were bitterly critical of some of my reporting after the war because they said, uh, I put, you know, my heart was on my sleeve too obviously, and I lost my impartiality as a reporter. But when you were that cold and that scared, <laughs> you do tend to lose your impartiality. I mean, one of the things very moving, in our normal lives at home, we lead on the whole pretty selfish lives. Um, and uh, we're all fighting for a seat on the bus or the tube, and um, um, we're all fighting to get the job or to get the this, that and the other. What's so moving in the middle of a war like that is that um, everybody's trying to help each other and suddenly there you are, you know, somebody's, they want to try and help you to get a ride on a helicopter to get somewhere that people you've never met in your life before were all together in some purpose and one morning um, I come back from the middle of the island um, to San Carlos and I'd hitched a ride on a landing craft um, back out to the command ship Phyllis so I could send a dispatch. And I was sitting absolutely exhausted, filthy dirty, um, shivering with the cold um, on the deck of this landing craft. And a head popped out of one of the hatches. And a Royal Marine said, he said, yeah, he said, um, um, you look a bit, a bit miserable and hungry. He said, would you like some bacon and eggs? And I said, God, I'd be absolutely ecstatic. And he suddenly 
hand came out out of the hatch and he handed me a plate of bacon and egg and I felt so unbelievably grateful and so moved that this guy I'd never seen in my life yeah. before he just wanted to help he wanted to be and I felt even more moved a few days later when that landing craft was sunk by Argentine aircraft and they were all killed um, and you've got to be a funny sort of human being when you're living at that close quarters whether you're a professional reporter mm. or whatever you've got to be a pretty funny sort of human being not to identify with these guys and to want our side to win there was controversy the other way there was opposition to some reporters who did report the war or for example like the BBC were trying to put it quite neutrally do <coughs> you think they went too far in trying to be impartial I was down there and I wasn't here so you can't I don't think it, it's not that easy for me to comment because I was at the other side of the world you never know what the British public mood's going to be and one thing that's very interesting is that um, nobody now says oh it's wrong to be impartial in reporting the war in Afghanistan almost every day there's mm. criticism of the campaign we're conducting in Afghanistan I've been very critical not of the soldiers but critical of yeah. um, the manner in which it's being done the British public doesn't feel engaged somehow the Falklands it was such an incredibly old-fashioned um, imperial venture that everybody absolutely literally started waving Union Jack again and the Falklands factor was something um, one of the things I'm going to say in the film I'm making now is maybe this was the last really popular war Britain will ever fight because everybody could see the case these are islands that belong to us um, a lot of foreigners have gone and um, invaded them and we've got to chuck them out everybody could understand it and they could also understand what winning meant that we all knew that what we had to do to win was just to get to Port Stanley and after that it was all over well of course with Afghanistan part of the tragedy is the troops out there call a lot of their camp a lot of their operations mowing the lawn because they go out there to a given place once every couple of weeks and they clear out the Taliban and maybe have a have a firefight with them and then two weeks later they got to go back and do it again just as if you were mowing the lawn um, and winning defining what is victory or defeat is very difficult and it goes on and on for years um, but the Falklands War had only lasted six weeks, so I'm bound to say that those of us who were down there, it seemed to be outside yeah. longer. And do you think part of the reason why the British public seemed in the hole to support the war was because the Argentine government was a kind of right-wing dictatorship rather than, say, a democratic government like Britain? The Argentine government, it was a horrible military dictatorship which had been oppressing its own people for many years mm. and murdering its own people for many years. So, um, uh, but... The, the Falkland Islanders, um, they, were, they spoke our language, they were our sort of people. Um, whereas, you know, to have all these um, foreigners who speak Spanish on the islands, um, it, was, it was pretty easy to empathise with the Falklanders and, um, and um, uh, pretty easy not to empathise with the Argentine. Uh, although the curious thing was, I mean, they are, they live in a dream world, Argent Argentines, that they never quite belong to the same universe as the rest of us um, their invasion was almost a sort of fantasy action they just never really believed that that we would see it differently and fight and again it was so weird when I was interviewing all these prisoners and they said they kept saying we never thought you were serious and we never wanted to fight you quite extraordinary how legitimate do you think the Argentine claim was to the islands there is a sort of battiness about Britain maintaining 
islands, this tiny community at vast cost um, on the other side of the world um, over all these years. In that, for example, we quite ruthlessly expelled the entire population of Diego Garcia in the middle of the Indian Ocean to make way for an American air base. And we thought absolutely nothing about chucking out the unfortunate islanders in order to suit our own convenience. But the Falkland Islanders, somehow, we've got sentimental about them. Um, and no British government now, while the Falkland generation is still alive, would dare um, hand them over or negotiate to hand them over to the Argentines, uh, to Argentina. Um, but it is amazing that, um, that you know, we readily, um, we readily uh, handed over Hong Kong and goodness knows what else. Um, but we have fought a war to preserve the Falklands um, with this tiny population. Um, but I don't know, it's the way that, that history turns out. It, it, it's, it may be illogical, but it's the way the British people feel very strongly about it. And, uh, and the Argentines haven't helped themselves much in that if they'd been smart, they would have been wooing the Falkland Islanders like mad. Um, and of course, ironically, I mean, I think, I forget somebody worked out the number. We could afford it to offer the British government could have afforded to offer the Falkland Islanders about £10 million each to either go away or, or accept Argentine sovereignty. But um, logic sometimes in, in human affairs, it doesn't play any part. And um, the way things are now, the Argentines have gone on making threatening noises and indeed are still making threatening noises now about uh, possibly taking back the islands. Um, and we've all got trapped in a situation where it's very difficult for either the British government, for the British government to uh, take any different position. Um, we'll probably have to go on spending whatever it is, eight, 70 or 80 million a year on defending the Falklands till, you know, till the end of time, the way things are at the moment. And especially if oil's discovered them. Um, because having uh, Britain having spent all these billions there, I don't think it would be very popular in Britain if we then simply gave them to um, to the Argentines when oil turns up there, if oil turns up there. If, let's say, the Argentines invaded the Falklands again, do you think Britain would go to war again to defend them? I don't think Britain would have any choice. And um, um, I know that um, the Ministry of Defence and the Chiefs of Staff take very seriously contingency plans for responding to any um, aggressive action by the Argentines. So I think we'd have to do it. But it would be... Um, it would obviously be much easier to defend the Falklands now because we've got this um, huge, very expensive airfield that we've created out there. And the airfield makes it easy to reinforce. Um, you can move troops in there mm. quickly, which of course you couldn't do um, back in 1982 because there was no airfield. So you wouldn't have to send a big naval task force again? Well, I don't mean it would be, it would be, you know, it would be a hell of a business to fight another war down there, but it would be easier to mount a defence. And going back to the war itself, do you remember what the experience of victory was like when you were there? The sheer sense of exultation. The thing is, when wars are going on, I mean, I had a moment um, of pure fun while I was on my way down to the Falklands because I promised my wife after, I, after Vietnam ended and when I left Saigon from the American Embassy in April 1975, and I promised her I'd stop going to wars. And I'd been to 11 wars and I'd never been scratched. And I suddenly got a bit emotional um, after a couple of drinks on my way down to the Falklands. 
And I thought, my God, oh, I pushed my luck too far. Having got away with all these other wars and having said I'd stopped being a war correspondent, it's just going to be one war too many. And I really started getting quite nervous about the notion that this would be the one I didn't come back from. And every man who, or every woman for that matter, who goes to a war, um, unless you're frightfully stupid, you do think about the possibility or the, that you may get killed. And the fact that when it's over and you find you haven't been killed, <laughs> one is so absolutely euphoric, you're so thrilled. And, um, and we'd won, you know, we'd done something really well. We'd, we'd, after the 1970s have been a dreadful decade for everybody living in Britain and my generation. We were all resigned to almost permanent British decline. And now, suddenly, here we found was something that we'd done really well. We knew we'd done it well. We knew that um, the Royal Navy and the British Army had you know, run this very difficult, tough campaign really well, and we'd won. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. That was Sir Max Hastings. The Falklands Legacy will be available to watch on BBC iPlayer until this Sunday night. You can read more about his time in the Falklands in the April issue of BBC History magazine. Max's latest book is All Hell Let Loose, The World at War, 1939-45. There's information about that at his website, maxhastings.com. Now we have a short advert. Lord Strange was the fifth Earl of Derby, cousin of Elizabeth I and a beacon of hope for Catholics. His death was shrouded in suspicion and one of the biggest stories of the time. Now in his compelling new thriller, Traitor, award-winning writer Rory Clements delves into the truth of what happened. He was a target for the Jesuits who thought he had wronged them. He was a target for people on the Privy Council who saw him as a threat. He was a target for the King of Scotland who saw him as a rival for the throne. As England lies under the threat of a second armada, 
Intelligentsa John Shakespeare must unravel a plot that points to treachery at the highest reaches of Elizabeth's government and sheds light on a fascinating mystery. And I think I might have just stumbled on the truth of what really happened to Lord Strange. Traitor by Rory Clements. Out now in bookshops nationwide. Our next interviewee is Dr Helen Parr, a lecturer at Keele University. She has been researching the impact of the Falklands War on the soldiers, their loved ones and the British population at large. I caught up with her to find out more. OK, so first of all, could I ask you, what inspired you to start researching this conflict? Well, I suppose, um, to be honest, uh, what inspired me to start researching the conflict is the fact that my uncle was killed in the Falklands. Um, so he was a 19-year-old private in Tupara, uh, and um, he, was, he was killed at Wireless Ridge on the last day of the, of the war. So although I was a child at the time, I was seven years old, I was always very aware of the impact that it had on my own family, uh, particularly on my grandparents, on, on, on my uncle's parents. Um, so I kind of grew up... Uh, with that, although you know it's, it's one step removed from me, but I was I was just very aware of the impact that it had on my family, um, and as a result, I've always been interested in the Falklands, and and with it being kind of thirty years now, it seemed like a good uh, uh, a good time to start researching it properly and to start sort of uh, trying to, to to talk to other families um, uh, and, and and veterans and so forth, and to and to build a kind of more complete picture of what the impact of the war was. And so, so the focus of your research is very much on the impact of the people involved. It's not like a military history or anything like that. Well, what I'm doing is, is, is writing a social history of the Falklands War. And what that means is, uh, what I want to do is, is look at what it was like uh, for the people who uh, were involved in it or who were affected by it. So that means kind of looking at, uh, at what it was like for combatants. So while I'm not writing a kind of uh, a high military history, I'm, I'm trying to access uh, what the experience was like for the people who were involved with it. And also to look at what it was like uh, on the home front, if we can use those words, um, sort of what it was like for their families uh, and, and what it was like after the war. Um, because I think sort of one of the quite striking things about the Falklands is it, it exhibits as a kind of national event because it's got this very compelling narrative to it. So it, it's quite, it's a short war. It only lasts for 74 days. It has a really clear origin. The Argentinians invade the Falkland Islands. Then the British dispatch a task force. It's got this kind of clear middle. There's a fighting war. And then it's got a really decisive uh, end, the, the British win. And, and I think to sort of to look at what happens to individuals and also to look at what happens at home Home kind of challenges that easy narrative a little bit and sort of blurs the boundaries between this sort of theatre of war and what's going on domestically and also extends the time frame of the war to look at kind of, it has an aftermath, although it has this kind of compelling sort of fits into quite a short time frame, but it has this long tail uh, and I think it sort of, it, it blurs it a bit to, to, to look at that. And, and from your research, what have you discovered about the impact of the war on the people who fought it? Well, I have to say, I, I should say, I'm kind of, I'm still, I, I'm in the early stage of the research, so I haven't yet begun to do to do interviews. That's that's what I'd like to go on to do to do next. But I've I've been doing a, a, a lot of reading, looking at the memoirs that um that that, that have been that have been written and the, and the interview material that's available. There's a lot of material available, 
And I think, I mean, the obvious thing to say about the impact on people who fought in it is that it varies a lot. Um, but I think that it's kind of, it's, it's, it's a very intense experience for the people who, who actually have to go out there and, and, and fight in it. So 28,000 servicemen go. The average age, at least of the soldiers, is, is 19. So, so on the whole, I mean, it's, it, there are kind of older members in the Merchant Navy and, and the Navy and so forth. But on the whole, they're young men and they're actually really excited. Uh, there hasn't been a war for 30 years and they're kind of, they're excited when they, when they go to the Falklands. They're excited to fight this battle. And it, it's a short war, as I just said, but the, the and, and although the, the sort of the land battles occupy quite a small time frame, sort of kind of five days, really, they're very intense. The fighting is very intense. Uh, it, there's there's hand to hand fighting with bayonets, um, and it, it, it's it's a very extreme experience. But I should say as well that I mean the majority of the servicemen who are killed are actually killed um, uh, on the ships uh, when the ships are bombed. So if you think about the kind of having had this really extreme experience, even for servicemen coming back who haven't been injured or who, or, um, uh, who kind of come back fully intact, it's still a difficult adjustment um, to, 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 to make. I mean, Lance Corporal Vincent Bramley in his, in his memoirs, he recalls that sort of after the fighting when they're in Stanley, they can't adjust to being in a domestic environment. Environment They've got so used to sleeping in the freezing cold in the open, they have to leave all the windows open. And obviously that's sort of quite a trivial uh, uh, point, but it's sort of symptomatic of this wider unease they feel about domestic comforts and the triviality that they sort of now associate with, with, with domestic life. And I think it's very difficult to reintegrate. They, most of them sort of say, you know they can't wait to get back off their leave and see their mates again so what what they kind of consider as normal has has become blurred but for servicemen who come back with a disability <laughs> um it's obviously a a, a, a very profound experience a, a a difficult experience um and i think sort of one thing that that, that one derives from the memoirs um is there's a sense that veterans have that they're now dispensable by a system that they've kind of given everything for. So John and Robert Lawrence's memoir, for example, is, is very interesting. So Robert Lawrence was badly injured on Tumbledown and his father was, a, uh, they, they describe themselves as being a forces family. And the book is really about the father kind of coming to terms with the fact that of, of his son's disability or injury. And even he kind of talks about this lack of recognition for what his son has achieved. And he kind of, he's aware that if he finds it difficult, then, um, for people at sort of lower ranks who are less well connected, it must be extremely difficult to adjust in the aftermath. What kind of assistance did the returning soldiers get from the government? Um, well, that's an interesting question, really, because, I mean, one of the main things or one of the main kind of um, things that returning servicemen are, are angry about is that they often feel that they they aren't given adequate assistance to adjust in the aftermath. Again, there's this sort of pervasive sense that they've, They've they've done their worth. They've kind of they've used up what what worth they had, and the, the, the army isn't isn't as interested in them in the aftermath. That's not universal, I have to say. Some of them do sort of talk kindly about the army in 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 the aftermath, but a lot of them don't. And one of the most sort of striking um, uh, uh, examples is the anger that that some returning veterans feel about post-traumatic stress disorder uh, or battle shock. So those of them who come back who are experiencing some kind of trauma. 
um, that they're not giving any, given any assistance in identifying or kind of coming to terms with uh, w- with with trauma. Um, in 2002, about 2,000 veterans go to court, not just from the Falklands, but f- from subsequent uh, conflicts as well, actually take the MOD to court to argue that the MOD should have done more to help them to identify uh, the symptoms of trauma. And, and, and they lose the case, in fact, because it's very difficult to prove that there's been systematic neglect, which is what they're, they're, they're trying to show. Um, but they certainly feel... Um, uh, angry that, that, that more should have been done to kind of alert them to um, to the possibility that there might be trauma. Because I think the symptoms of PTSD are uh, extremely distressing for people who, who experience them. And before they know what it is, <laughs> it's very, very difficult to deal with. And it, it makes it very, very, very hard for them. They kind of, they, they have terrible flashbacks or nightmares um, or sort of living flashbacks where they physically experience uh, uh, or re-experience things that have happened to them. But before they know what's happening to them, it kind of exhibits as they're being kind of angry, un- uncontrolled young men they often uh, it often goes with sort of alcohol or substance abuse and so forth uh, once they get diagnosis then they can begin to kind of move on uh, uh, from it but the fact that the fact is that they're not they don't feel that they're given help in in, in getting that diagnosis was the government better at helping those who'd come back from the war wounded um it's difficult to say to be honest um it's quite mixed what people say about it. I mean, for example, Simon Weston, whose memoirs are, are, are very well known, who was a Welsh guardsman who uh, was on the Sir Galahad when the Sir Galahad was bombed. He speaks very highly of the of, of the Welsh guards and how actually it helped him a great deal. Um, uh, he, he goes sort of on a trip with the Welsh guards afterwards and it kind of helps him to sort of... Um, to, to, to re-establish his sort of sense of, sense of identity in a way. Um, but other 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 people don't speak so. Other f- people feel more dispensed with. I think that that there isn't really a role for them in the army after if they come back with a disability, and uh, they find it they find that difficult to to, to to come to come to terms with. What kind of impact was it on the families of those who who died in the war or those who were injured? Um. Well, again, I mean, it's, uh, the impact is, is obviously very varied, um, but I think it seems like an obvious thing to say, but I think it's probably quite important to say it, is that the impact is also very considerable. So it has a very serious impact on, on people who, who, um, who, who have a loved one who's been injured or, or, or killed. I mean, even if combatants come back with no injury, <laughs> as I said at, at the beginning, yeah. it's often quite difficult to kind of to, to reintegrate uh, um, and I guess you know for a family that's been waiting at home for a serviceman to, 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 to come back they're no doubt they're proud of what of what their loved one has done but they can't treat them as a hero on a day-to-day basis you've got to kind of get on with it and kind of and come back and kind of absorb this normality and I think even that is is, is quite difficult to people for people to to adjust to. But where there's been an injury, sort of either a physical or um, or a sort of uh, an injury uh, connected with trauma, it's 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 often a really huge transformation. And um, families report kind of practical issues, uh, 
for example, uh, if a serviceman is in a, is in a hospital, which is some distance from where you live, uh, families have to kind of spend money and take time to visit the the serviceman in hospital. Sometimes they have to give up their jobs uh, because they they just don't. It's, it's just very difficult to kind of find the time uh, to, to 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 make to make those visits. Sort of obvious points about returning servicemen who have disabilities. Uh, adjustments have to be made for their mobility, uh, and you know if if you're married to a serviceman and you live in service accommodation if they can no longer serve then you have to move house so it kind of it affects people's whole sense of 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 who they are and 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 what their kind of role is um it's quite interesting i suppose that the generation of service wives in in the early 1980s they generally do have their own careers uh, so they're not kind of reliant on their husbands for 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 all of their status or or anything but uh, as i said some of them have to give up work to take on a caring role some of them have to move house or some of them i guess end up becoming the main breadwinner and that sort of could be a, a, an adjustment in how people think of themselves and think of their 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 roles um in their family and in in society more 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 widely um anecdotally at least it's quite common that there's relationship breakdowns uh in the aftermath of the war although again anecdotally uh, lots do reacquaint afterwards but it's quite clear that it's a sort of period of uh of of adjustment and 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 some sort of dislocation and were the families or the, the other loved ones of of those who died or injured were they offered support from the armed forces or the government well Again, it's it's hard to say. Uh, it's sort of in its entirety, but certainly the feeling that one gets from reading interviews with families that are done in the immediate aftermath um, is that they they feel that they're not a priority, um, and that's kind of. I think that's quite important. So this is this is something which has a tremendous impact on individual lives, but families sort of feel that that now that you know if if a serviceman is is dead or is injured and can no, can, can no longer serve that that, that 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 they're just not a priority uh, so nobody really kind of cares or takes an interest in in what they're going through and you can illustrate that sort of looking at how information about casualties is is handled um and on the whole, it sort of seems that the, the, the provision of information to families is not terribly well handled at all um, and I guess I guess in a way it's kind of it's kind of obvious. I mean, the Navy hasn't had to deal with this since the Second World War, so they don't really have procedures in place. Uh, the Army do have procedures because of Northern Ireland, but even so, they're quite overwhelmed by the the sort of numbers of casualties that happen in a short space of time. And so, there's plenty of examples uh, where families are kind of left not knowing what's happened to, uh, to, to, to to their family member for a day or two. For example, the news of the sinking of the HMS Sheffield is first heard on the radio and then families are kind of left to, to, to ring up to try to find out uh, whether uh, whether their, their kind of loved one is, it has survived or not. And in one or two cases, false information is given. Um, when the HMS Coventry is sunk, the Defence Secretary John Knott uh, just announces that one ship has been sunk, which, as you can imagine, kind of sends families into a terrible period of not quite knowing what's happened. And similarly, uh, when the Sir Galahad is sunk, again, there's lots of examples of, of families just finding it difficult to um, 
to, 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 to get hold of information. And, and some of them report that it's this not knowing, uh, which is the worst period, the worst sort of period of, uh, of, of their life. And it can take sort of two to three days for accurate information to come through. And again, I mean, there's sort of there's examples as well as who gives the news to families varies quite a lot. So in some examples, it's it's the wife of a senior army army member who lives in the camp. In other examples, it's a padre or a chaplain or a welfare welfare officer. And I mean, sometimes the news is given sensitively, but uh, other times it's, it's it, it doesn't seem to have been given terribly sensibly. Uh, one one uh, uh, widow was six months pregnant, and she receives the news just on her or just on her doorstep. Um, and families also sort of feel that the information isn't given. So the parents of Private Jason Burt, for example, who are interviewed in Jean Carl's book, um, in the immediate aftermath, Jason Burt was the youngest soldier to die uh, in the Falklands. And they really want to know exactly how he, he died, but they're not told, although they ask, and they're not told until the soldiers come back uh, subsequently. Um, uh, the, the, the sort of the soldiers who served with him come and, and tell them, but the, the sort of senior members of the army don't give them that information. So I think families feel like they're just not a priority, um, which in, in a way you can understand they're obviously not. The army's engaged in fighting a war, but but it kind of it obviously makes a, a big difference to people to feel like um, th that nobody really cares about about what's about this this terrible thing that's happened to them. After the people had been killed in the Falklands, um, what was the process of repatriating their bodies? I suppose it's controversial in a sense because it's the first time that, that bodies are repatriated from a combat zone, from a combat zone, at least in Britain. Um, I should say that the, actually the, the majority of servicemen are buried at sea, 174 are buried at sea because they, they were on the ships that were, that were bombed. Um, but of those who, who aren't, 64 bodies are repatriated. So most families want the bodies to be brought home from the combat zone. And that's a kind of, that's a quite interesting comment on how they view uh, uh, the war, perhaps. Um, of those who choose to, uh, to, to have the bodies buried in the Falklands, 14 bodies are buried in, in a cemetery in the Falkland Islands and two are buried at, at the actual location where they were killed. And for example, Sarah Jones, the, the widow of Colonel H. Jones, who wins the VC at, at Goose Green, she argues that, that, that H. Jones would want to be buried with his men, kind of near to where he fell. But for most families, I think, for the for the bodies uh, for for those who kind of want the bodies to be brought home and there's there's a kind of there's a rapid and um there's this kind of a rapid campaign builds up uh, to to repatriate the bodies uh, and it's kind of it's resolved fairly quickly i don't think it's a very difficult decision for the government to take uh, to to allow the bodies to be repatriated i think families feel that well you know, a lot of the, 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 the men who were killed were quite young. They've obviously spent much more time at home uh, and, and they want to be sort of, they should be laid to rest where they grew up. Um, families want to be able to tend graves. And again, to sort of draw on the testimony of the parents of Private Jason Burt, who, who was only 17 when he was killed, they argue very strongly in 1982 that he shouldn't have been there. He was too young to be sent to war. He was too young to be sent to Northern Ireland. Um, uh, so why was he sent to the Falklands? And for that reason, they, 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 they want him home. And of the bodies that are repatriated... Again, 18 are buried at the military cemetery in, in Aldershot, but most are buried locally um, in, a, in, a, uh, in a place of the family's choosing. And I think that what that shows is, again, 
it's a small war. It, it, the numbers involved are, are not huge, but the people who have experienced bereavement are quite isolated. And it's, it's clear that, you know, there are sort of some small communities in Hereford, for example, where most of the SAS men, men's families live. Uh, 18 SAS men were killed um, at, um, and, and most of their families live in Hereford or in Glamorgan, where a lot of the Welsh guard, guards are from. But on the whole, sort of families are kind of left to deal with it, much as any other bereaved family would would have to deal with it. They're 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 they're, they're dealing with it alone and relying on kind of traditional sources of um, uh, uh, of support. And it leaves people in quite an isolated position, I think, in the aftermath of the war. And so, what was the longer term impact on a family that had lost a loved one? Um. Well, again, I mean, as with injury, it's kind of, it, it has a, a, a tremendous impact on on families. I mean, my father remembers uh, thinking as he, after he'd heard the news that his brother had been killed, he remembers driving home and thinking that nothing will ever be the same again. And I think that that's, that's true. I mean, this is something that just can't be undone. Uh, and so families have to kind of, have to come to terms with it however they can. And it's interesting that in this collection of interviews uh, by by Jean Carr that are done in the immediate aftermath, the focus is very much on on mothers. Uh, it's on widows as well, but it's mainly on mothers. And I think there's a sense in which mothers kind of experience this ultimate form of grief. And some of the mothers actually say that themselves, um, sort of bearing in mind that, that when they're interviewed in 1982, it's still very, very raw. They kind of argue that, well, the wives can get a new husband, but you can't replace a child. But it's kind of interesting, I think, that the focus on mothers in some ways distracts from thinking about fathers. And I found absolutely nothing about the impact or, or the grief that fathers experience. I mean, some fathers, again, from the sort of testimony that's available in the soldiers' memoirs, uh, some fathers have, have had a more distant role in their sons' upbringings. But no doubt the grief for them is still very, very real. And it's often the case that fathers have encouraged their sons to go into the military. And just as a sort of an, as an example of that, the, 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 um, the dedication that my grandfather wrote on... Um, on, on the wreath that he placed on, on, on my uncle's grave, to my hero son from your broken-hearted dad. And I think that probably sort of encapsulates something which a lot of fathers do feel, but their grief is sort of overlooked uh, it, with, by thinking about how it, affects, how it affects the mothers who are perhaps better equipped perhaps to talk about the grief uh, and, and, and to talk about how it, how it affects them. Um, so I suppose the point is, is that it has a, a bereavement has, a, has an enormous impact on, on families that it does affect and how people come to terms with that sort of differs, uh, differs a great deal. Was, and was there any kind of sense of guilt of some parents if they encouraged a child to go into the armed services and then they were killed? I don't know. I mean, again, I think it, it varies a lot. I've seen some sort of testimony on the internet, which where sort of families have kind of come from a, a, an army family or or, or um, sort of uh, families with a sort of history of, of service. And I don't think they do feel guilt, really. And what a lot of families say is, well, our son was sort of doing a job that he loved. And so they recognise that even though they've paid this, this terrible price, that, that they couldn't really have stopped their child from doing it because it, it, it was what they wanted to do. And, and, uh, and therefore, somehow, 
I think I think I haven't found evidence that they actually feel guilty. Um, I, it doesn't mean that they don't, but I think lots of families articulate it in this way: uh, that the, the 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 child was doing, or the or the husband was doing a job that he loved, and they couldn't actually have stopped him from doing that job, even though they miss him enormously. And on the sort of the wider nation as a whole, how were the dead commemorated? Well, I think, again, it kind of goes back to what I said about the beginning, at the beginning about the Falklands being a sort of national event. And I think one of the interesting things about it is that it is commemorated as an event, partly because it can be. I mean, many more soldiers are killed in Northern Ireland in the 1970s, for example, but it's much more difficult to commemorate that as an actual event. But the Falklands, sort of, because it has this sort of narratable structure, it, it can be commemorated and it is commemorated. And sort of it's implicit in your question, really, but the commemoration is is contested. And one of the interesting questions to ask is, is who is the commemoration for? So, for example, um, there's a, a memorial service at St Paul's Cathedral in, in July 1982, so sort of soon afterwards. And Margaret Thatcher very much sees this as being a celebration of the liberation of the islands and remembrance of the fallen. But the Archbishop of Canterbury wants the emphasis to be on peace and, re and reconciliation. And eventually they have to compromise and they just call it the Falkland Island Service. And this kind of, this contest kind of continues. And in October, they have a march and a, a march past and a fly past in the city of London. Uh, and one of the areas of debate is that initially disabled veterans are excluded from the march past, but after pressure in the House of Commons, uh, they're permitted to, to, to take part. And it's very interesting if you watch footage of the march past right at the, at the, at the beginning, the TV journalist uh, Anthony Burnett is talking to the army's a PR person who, they, who they've got present. And Anthony Burnett says, oh, well, this is a victory parade. And the army's PR person said, well, yes, we have to recognise the fact that it, that it is a victory and we have to be proud of that, but I prefer to see it as saluting the task force. So it's kind of recognising the achievement that the individuals have made uh, and kind of muting this idea that it's a celebration of a, of a national victory. But obviously the two things kind of blur a little bit. And I think that that kind of picks up on some sort of ambivalence that families feel uh, in the aftermath. I mean, some families obviously support the sacrifice that has been made for the liberty of the, of the Falkland Islands and argue that this is a war for freedom, uh, but others think it's a pointless war. Their kind of political views on, on the point of the Falklands vary. But I think what, what probably unites families is, is the pride in what they're family members or their loved ones have done uh, for the and the job that they that, that they have done uh, and to that extent even if they don't fully support the the war it they they recognize or at least accept that, that they would like some kind of recognition public recognition of the achievement that, that the task force has made um, so in that sense it's kind of commemoration is a kind of recognition for what their loved ones have achieved you're researching the project at the moment. What kind of outcomes are you hoping for from it? Um, that's a good question. Um, I think what I'm kind of hoping to do is I, I think sort of focusing on individual experience and um, looking for sort of stories that haven't been told. I mean, there's a lot of material already available about about the Falklands War, but the kind of the, the, the what's going on at home it has has not been nearly as extensively investigated and i think that looking at sort of individual experience and looking at um 
uh, what it's like for the families and looking at the kind of aftermath of the war, it helps to kind of complicate this simple national narrative of a beginning and a middle of an end because it sort of it blurs the boundaries between the combat zone and 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 what's going on at home and it sort of shows that you know soldiers go and in the combat zone they're soldiers but when they come home they're their fathers, their sons, their 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 husbands. So it, it kind of it looks at, at, at how people navigate those roles, and it kind of it creates a sort of fuller picture, I think, of of what the effects of the war are. Because obviously, it's it's a small war, doesn't actually affect you know that many people overall. But nevertheless, it it still does have a tremendous impact on those who it does affect. And I think that that kind of enables you to draw a sort of a, a fuller picture of what it means to prosecute a small war in, a, in the contemporary era, um, if you like. That was Helen Parr of Keele University. Well, that's all for this week. Please let us know what you thought of this episode on Twitter, Facebook or email podcast at historyextra.com. As I mentioned earlier... BBC History magazine is now available for the Kindle and for the iPad. Check us out on the Amazon website and the Apple newsstand, respectively. Do tune in next week, where our editor Dave Musgrove will be talking Romans, and I'll be finding out whether Shakespeare gave Richard II a fair crack of the whip. The History Extra weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced, as always, by Dave Gibson. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.